0: attention back to the text as it was just read for us. I want you to put your minds on the scene that is given to us in Matthew chapter 26. You can imagine Jesus and his disciples are in a secluded place. It is in the middle of the night. They are in the depths of darkness as they are on a hill called Mount Olives across the way from Jerusalem. He has told his disciples that tonight would be the night when all those things were going to be fulfilled. Tonight would be the night of their testing and trial. Tonight would be the night when he was going to be betrayed and arrested. And he's told his disciples to stand, watch, and pray. And as we looked at last week, while Jesus is out praying, the disciples are sleeping. Jesus is preparing himself For this moment of temptation and trial with prayer, he has told his disciples they need to do likewise and prepare for this temptation and trial with prayer. But the flesh was weak while the spirit was willing and they are found sleeping. As Jesus for the third time comes back to his disciples, he now arouses them from their sleep. And you will notice that we are told in verse 46 that he says it's time to get up because... The betrayer is here. And I want you just to imagine the scene as it is put before us. I believe it would have been a a very shocking scene. If you can put yourself on that hill in the darkness as one of the disciples of Jesus and you are uh, rousing yourself out of sleep and standing up and just imagine the scene that is coming before you. There is a person in the front that you know very well. A man that you've been with for years now at this point, that you have spent probably every day with for the past three years. He is walking toward Jesus as he's coming toward them. But behind him is quite a crowd. We're told in verse 47 that it's not Judas by himself, but the words tell us that it is a great crowd that is following behind with him. And not only is it a great crowd, you will notice that this great crowd is carrying weapons. They have swords and clubs. So you can imagine in the pitch of darkness, a great crowd following behind Judas, probably some holding torches to be able to see in one hand, another hand, sword Another hand clubs. This is not a friendly crowd that is approaching as they start making their way to Jesus. We're told in verse 48, as was just read for us, that Judas has given a signal because of the depths of darkness. You know, we're not going to be able to make him out. And so Judas says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to identify the one that you need to arrest. I'm going to go up to him and I'm going to give the kiss of friendship. You can imagine in ancient Near Eastern world, typically in a greeting, you give a hug, you lean in, kiss on the cheek, and he's going to use... The action of friendship as the means of betrayal. And that's what you see happening in verse 49. There doesn't seem to be any hesitation whatsoever as the crowd begins to move closer to Jesus and these other 11 disciples. It says there in, in verse 49 that Jesus, I mean that Judas came up to Jesus at once. My visual is He just made a beeline right for him. He just went right toward Jesus. And I want you to be there watching this scene unfold as Judas just makes a beeline right for Jesus. And in verse 49, you hear him say to Jesus, greetings, Rabbi, and gives him that kiss. You know, we have times in our lives when we know that somebody is being rather fake. There are times when you have somebody come up to you and they say all the right words of seeming friendship and seeming care. But you know what they're doing and you know what those words are all about and you know that they're not being real whatsoever And I would like for you to imagine all the things that you like to do in that moment that you probably don't do in your Christian restraint. But the things that you are thinking about, the things that you wish you could do, the things you, you want to just call out this fakeness, you want to do something about it. You really want to just kind of put it to them and go, really, you, you're going to act like we're friends when I know full well that you're stabbing me in the back. There, there's all kinds of things that go through your mind and things that you want to say and, and things that you want to do. And I just want you to visualize that's what's happening in this moment with Judas and Jesus is this moment of fake friendship is going down. To come up to Jesus with this mob behind you and say, hi, teacher, and give him the kiss of friendship as you do that. And I want you to be amazed at what Jesus does in verse 50. While Judas is all about a betrayal up to the end. I want you to notice that Jesus first word. Is friend. Friend. Do what you came to do. I don't think friend would be the first word I would have come up with. I don't think I would have said, hey, friend, but I want you to appreciate the amount of control and the amount of understanding of what Jesus is about to do to say to this one who is absolutely fake in this friendship and betraying him through the friendship. That he could say back to him, friend, you go ahead and do what you came to do. He doesn't yell at him. He doesn't call him out. He doesn't make a spectacle out of him. He doesn't physically respond to him. He doesn't push him away. He doesn't hit him. He doesn't try to run. There are a myriad of options and a myriad of responses as this one comes up to you in full falsehood, acting like a friend, even though he has gathered the masses behind him. And Jesus simply says, Friend, go ahead. You go ahead and do what I know you've come to do. Go ahead and finish what you've started. And that begins what I would say is probably a little bit of chaos now. In verse 51... We're told in Matthew's account that there is one who was with Jesus there who stretches out his hand and he takes the sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. The end of verse 50 kind of visualizes the tussle. Here is Judas. He gives the kiss and the rest start coming up to Jesus and they start seizing him. We aren't told in Matthew's account, Mark's account or Luke's account, but John says, oh, by the way, that was Peter. <laughs> Peter pulls out that sword. And, you know, when you read that, I won't don't think you would be right to read this and say, and what Peter did was he saw the servant of the high priest coming and he, he aimed for a little poke at his ear. Yeah. And got his ear. Cut off his ear. You know, here comes the high priest, and he kind of does a I imagine as the tussle's unfolding, that Peter's taking an overhand swing. And as the high priest is moving, it gets his ear. Now this is a dangerous scene and a dangerous moment. They're grabbing Jesus. Peter's grabbing his sword. He starts to swing. He lands a blow. Servant moves out of the way just in time. Gets his ear cut off. And I want you to see what Jesus does in the middle of that. Verse 52, Jesus does not say, get him, boys. Let's fight. We're going down our way in our time, Right? Again, note the control in the midst of all that's going on right here, in the midst of the tussle, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the struggle. The crowd is grabbing him. Peter's ready to swing for his life. And I want you to notice that what we see Jesus doing here in in, in verse 52, put the sword back in its place. You can imagine as they're grabbing him and pulling him, he's just telling Peter, no, no, no. We're not doing that. No, put the sword away. No, this is not going to be a fight. This is not going to be a brawl. There's not going to be bloodshed. That's not what's going on right here. We're not going to have that moment right now. So again, what amazing control. in the How easy if you just go like, well, you know, my guys, you know. No, he's not going to allow that to happen. And I want you to notice that in the midst of, of this tussle and chaos and beginning of a fight. Jesus is still teaching. In fact, it is something that I'm going to highlight over the next few Sundays as we move all the way to the cross and through the cross. Is Jesus has never done teaching. Jesus is still taking opportunities to teach. And he does it right here in verse 52. First reason why put the sword away, put it back in its place. He says in verse 52, For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Essentially, violence and retaliation is not the way of the Christian. We're not killing people here. You want to grab the sword? You're going to die by the sword. And that's not the mission. That's not who we are. That's not what we came to do. And you have to love how he's just putting that right at him. That's not what this is about. This is not about a physical fight. This is not about killing people. This is not trying to win a physical battle. This is not trying to subdue your enemy. You want to live your life like that? You're going to die that way. And that goes all the way back to the beginning. When Noah gets off the ark. God says, whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed because God made humans in his image. That is not what we're doing. We are not going to start killing people. This is not going to be a melee out here. Put the sword away. Reason number one. But I want you to notice he's not done. Look at verse 53. Verse 53, not only is this not the way of the Christian in regards to violence, in verse 53 he says, don't you think I can call to my father and he will at once send me 12 legions of angels? A Roman army, a legion was approximately 6,000 soldiers. So about, you know, don't you think I can call 72,000 angels if I want to? Friends, he would have only needed one. You might remember in the days of Hezekiah, one angel wiped out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. You know, Jesus could be like, I could just blink and this would be over, <laughs> right? I don't need defending. I don't need you to fight for me. I don't need your physical violence on my part. If I if I need to handle this physical moment, I could. Uh, You don't think that I can fight back? You don't think that I couldn't have God send angels? You don't think I could put this over in a moment? Uh, I I could have seventy two thousand angels standing here in a millisecond. What a picture of power under control. Or a word that our Bible uses <clears throat> meekness. Extraordinary strength and power and capability. Restrained. Held back. Kept in check. We're not fighting. That's not our way. I can take care of myself. And he's not done yet. Verse 54. Don't you know this is what the scripture said? He's teaching. I mean, please note that. Don't visualize this as if, as if he's sitting there teaching his disciples in the calm moment. <laughs> this is a few verses. So they seized him, and, and, and Peter swinging, and he's stopping the chaos, and he's making a three-point sermon as he stops the chaos about why we don't do this. We're not going to be violent. I can call 12 legions of angels at any time. And this is what the scripture said had to happen. And you can imagine the intensity and the feelings of the disciples right now. You can imagine quickly kind of rolodexing through the scriptures and going, oh yeah. Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That was the very scene just a few hours ago. Remember when they're all asking, it's not me who's betraying you, right? And Jesus is taking bread and dipping it and handing it to him. Here's your text. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread. Has lifted his heel against me. Or a little bit later in the Psalms. Psalm 55 verse 12. Now it is not an enemy who insults me. Or otherwise I could bear. It is not a foe who rises up against me. Otherwise I could hide from him. But it is you. A man who is my peer. My companion. And good friend. We used to have a close fellowship and we walked with the crowd into the house of God. Oh, the scriptures are weighty about what this relationship was. And now how it is turned to use the friendship as the betrayal. And so Jesus is saying this was always the plan. This is David talking Hundreds of years earlier and saying, as he spoke about himself, there would be a son of David who would go through the exact same thing and of a greater level. And so not only does he teach his disciples, but I want you to notice now he starts teaching the crowd. He's still being seized. He's still being taken away. Look at verse 55. And he said to the crowds, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. You just imagine as the crowd is surrounding him and hauling him away. He's like, hey guys in the crowd. Hey, listen to this for a moment. Why are you doing it like this? You could have had me any day. What kind of rebellion do you think I'm running? That you come out here with swords and clubs like I'm going to fight back. What's my big crime? I sat in the temple courts every day teaching. You could have grabbed me any time. I wasn't hiding. In broad daylight, I was walking the temple courts and walking the streets of Jerusalem it's almost like what Jesus is doing is telling the crowd, hey, I want you to think about why the religious leaders are wanting you to do this at night like this. Why do you think you're not just kidding me in the daytime? Why aren't they here? What do you think is happening at this moment? And then Jesus reminds them what's happening at this moment. This is happening to fulfill scripture. This is the plan. This is what God always said was going to happen. I think the end of verse 56 might be some of the most chilling words ever written in Scripture. In all of the chaos and in all the tussle, and as they have seized Jesus and they begin to pull him away, and you can imagine... Peter taking the sword that he just cut off this guy's ear and puts it back into his sheath. And there's the eleven standing there. And it says, they ran away. They don't follow. They're not going to stay with him. They skedaddle. Remember, just a few hours earlier, Jesus quoted Zechariah and said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And all the disciples said, no, we will not scatter. We will not abandon you. We will not leave. Peter gets very adamant. I would die with you. That's not going to happen. They might all forsake you, but not me. And here's the chilling words. Jesus was right. And there they go. Look at verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered. That's chilling words, too. Friends, it's the middle of the night. And the whole Sanhedrin... And all of the chiefs, leaders, and elders, and scribes, and the high priest are all ready for their tribunal moment. You know, what are we at? 3 a.m.? 4 a.m.? Who knows where we're at in the middle of the night right now? But they're all ready for this. They knew this was all going to happen. This is not impromptu. They have all taken their seats, and they are ready. Do appreciate verse 58. I don't know how far Peter ran But all of a sudden now he starts following at a distance. (laughs) You know, here goes the eleven. They scatter. They're gone. And you can imagine the movement of the crowd as they're going toward the high priest's house. And Peter stops that run somewhere along the way and turns back around and starts carefully following at a distance, watching this scene unfold. And they take Jesus Into the house of the high priest. Peter then in verse 58. He makes it to the courtyard. And takes his seat out there with the guards. We'll look at him. Next week Lord willing. But he's going to be right there in the vicinity. There's some courage there. Give him that. He's come back around. And he's sitting right there. Amongst that mob crowd. That has just been a part of this a moment ago. Verse 59, I want you to be shocked by what this says. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Notice, and they gathered together to figure out the truth about this guy. You know, we need to have a trial. We need to figure out what this is about. Is he legit? Is he a blasphemer? Is he for real? This is not what this trial is about. The text specifically says we want lies so that we can kill him. That's what we want. Get as many people as we can together who will lie about this guy so that we can kill him. That's what they're doing. Boy, can you imagine a court like that? Not a court you want to be a part of. You're being walked into that. We just want a bunch of liars to show up. Who will just say whatever they can. Here's what's really stunning about that. So here's the message. Get all the liars in here. Verse 60. They couldn't even find them. (laughs) They found none. Though many false witnesses came forward. You can imagine they're all making up stuff. But none of them are agreeing. Remember you've got to have two or three witnesses. To be able to confirm. To be able to put Jesus to death. Under the law of Moses. They can't even get that. They're all making up stuff, and you can imagine the high priest said, anybody else can corroborate that? No. (laughs) So here's the best that they come up with. Verse 60, at last, two come forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Well, that's obviously execution worthy. Two people agree that Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. He did say that. Of course, Jesus was talking about himself as John 2 reveals to us. And not about the building itself. And there's obviously no crime in what Jesus said but that's enough. Verse 62, the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? You want to make a defense about that? I hope you're getting the sense how pointless a defense would be. What good is it going to do to say, you guys are taking that out of context. And <laughs> you know, you're going to let me go now, right? You know, I just... <laughs> There's obviously no point to having a discussion here about the merits of the charge. They're not interested in that. That was made abundantly clear back in verse 59. They'll take any lie. Whatever lying testimony we can give, that's what we'll take. And as the scriptures say, he just stays silent through the trial. Verse 63, he remains silent. The high priest becomes more adamant. I adjure you by the, by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. You think Jesus is going to say no? No. You've said it. I'm often amazed at the frequency by which critical scholars will say, Jesus never claimed to be God or the son of God. Let me show you the myriads of ways they're wrong. First, Jesus doesn't say, no, that's not what I meant. You got it all wrong. I'm not divine. I'm not God. I'm not the son of God. Let's just clear all this up right now. No, he confirms it. You said it. I know you don't believe it, but you said it. But then notice Jesus isn't done. Verse 64, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. If you don't think that is an acceptance of divinity, then you're not reading your Bible. The Son of Man title occurs in Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel seven, that title was a reference to the Messiah, the Christ, who was going to ascend back to the father in the clouds and receive all glory, all power, all rule, all authority and all dominion in an everlasting kingdom. And not only did he say that. Please note that he says in verse 64, he says, you're going to see it. He just pronounced his authoritative judgment on Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Are you the Christ, the son of the living God? You said it and you are going to see the son of man in all of his authority and power and his eternal kingdom and rule destroy this place. And as the censure, if you don't think he called himself God, please look at what Caiaphas says as a response in verse 65. He uttered blasphemy. He calls everything that Jesus just said blasphemous. He is taking it on full strength. He's not ducking this title. He is wearing it, owning it, and pushing it right back on him. You betcha. You call me the Christ of God. You said so, and guess what? Judgment's coming. Verse 65 What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they all answer He deserves death. Trial complete. We're going to see this a few times in the scriptures. It's going to hurt to read it because it's going to happen a lot. But here's the first time. And now the Sanhedrin council with their leaders and their high priest and all of their religiosity that they think they possess. Spit in his face. start punching him and they start slapping him and as they spit on him and punch him they ask for him to act like a prophet you're you're the messiah what's my name that just hit you who just punched you you think you're divine you think you're god who just hit you now? As they just pummel him. Three things I want us to think about in regards to three fascinating responses that are occurring in this moment of Jesus' final hours. First response is Judas. Judas. It is fascinating to think about Judas. One of these days, I want to just kind of do a whole Judas lesson because he is such an interesting person. To have followed Jesus all of this time, to have heard the teachings, to have witnessed the miracles, and yet have never fully been on board with Jesus, that you're able to turn him over. That, to whatever extent that relationship was fairly fake, He looked like a friend, he looked like a close companion. He was with him every step of the way. And yet he wasn't convinced completely, was he? He was not a fully devoted follower. Because when given the opportunity, he sees the way to turn Jesus over. And if that were not bad enough, to use the friendship as the means of his betrayal is just all the more awful. To walk up to Jesus and call him your friend and your teacher, Rabbi, hi. I just can't believe the kind of seared conscience and gutsiness to walk up to him and do that. I think I'd be in the distance going, is that guy over there? You know, I don't want to approach him. He just walks right up to him and turns him right over. How sad it is to think that We could spend a lifetime with Jesus and be fake all the way through it. How sad it is to think that you could listen to the teachings and know his life and know his word and it not change you in the slightest, though you look like a friend, though you look like a companion, you look like you're one that walks with him. You appear to be a disciple. You would call him your teacher but inside it's really fake it's all a show it's just a facade can you imagine what the other 11 thought when they saw Judas do that their jaws must have been open thought you were one of us thought you were with us Uh, I thought you said it wasn't you when we all sat around the table a few hours earlier and I would just ask you, if that's where you are this morning, I just want to ask you a simple question. What's the point of having a fake relationship with God? I mean, really, what's the point? What are you doing? What's the point of the, the dancing around and looking like you're something that you're not? What, what, what's that accomplishing? God knows it's fake. You're not pulling it over on him as if he doesn't know. He knows your heart. And I'm pressing upon you this morning to not have a fake relationship with God. To carefully consider, is it all for show? Is this just all what you've always done? You were grown up in the pews. You were raised in the church. You were part of all the Bible classes. You had all that background. And so you're here because I don't know what else I'm supposed to do on a Sunday. Aren't I supposed to be here? And it's all just facade. And I just want to press you. Don't be that person. Don't be the fake follower that has all the looks but isn't giving their life to Jesus. Don't do it for the show. God knows if you're fake. And God wants you to press into him and have a real relationship with him. I'm pressing you to push for more. That you would not look at your relationship with God as, well, we get two hours here and that's all God wants and that's all good. But I want you to be real with God. I want you to have a deep relationship with him. Don't settle for the fake and don't settle for the surface. Don't settle for a shell. That's Judas. Fake to the end. Pretending all the way there. I also want you to notice the disciples. How easy is it for us to say, we would never abandon you. We would never falter in the face of fear. You bring it on, we're going to stand. Bring the enemies in, we're there. Nothing anybody can say or do would ever cause me to turn away from my Lord. We all want to be in that camp. When the disciples all said that in the last paragraph, I'm like, yeah, let's go. Right? We're in. We'll never fail. We'll never falter. Be warned. Easy to say, hard to do. You have to mentally get ready for that moment. You need to be ready for when your friend challenges you on your faith. You need to be ready when the outsider says you're really a Christian. You need to be ready to say, I'm not going to walk away when it gets scary because of what people say and do. I don't have time, but it's going to get scarier and harder, friends. We're running down that road. The the ease of being a Christian in our culture and in our nation is quickly evaporating and it's gonna be scary you gonna be okay with that or will that be on our names there in verse 56 then they all left him and fled don't abandon when you get afraid or maybe you're in camp number three aren't these religious leaders interesting They just don't even care what the truth is. (laughs) Evidence doesn't matter. Information don't care. Tell me the truth, irrelevant. I have already pre-decided I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I want him out of my life and I want him dead. Let me ask you something, because I think this is the most frightening position of them all. Here's why. Can you imagine someone telling you that they did not like a book or did not like a movie, even though they never read it or watched it? People do that, right? Hey, did you read that book? They're like, oh, I've never read that book. That's terrible. Oh, did you read it? No, but I heard what everybody else said about it. I've never read that. A really great, neat movie. Why are you talking about a great movie? Oh, did you watch it? No, everybody tells me it's terrible. You would look at the person and go, maybe you should try it before you predetermine your judgment over the book. Friends, do you know how many people have made a decision on Jesus and have never read what it says? But have listened to what everybody else has said. They've heard everybody's opinion about it. But have you read the gospel of Matthew? Or have you just already decided? I already know this God. Never read anything before Matthew. But I already know this God. Because of what everybody else has told me. Is that a good way to rest your eternal soul? Is on what everybody else has said about God. Here's what's interesting. These religious leaders did. They didn't care. They don't want truth. They don't want information. They just want God out of their lives. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be your decision. Will you pretend with Jesus to the end? Will you be strong but abandoned at the end? Will you re- reject him from start to finish all the way? Or will you follow him to the end? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you gave your son to endure such horrible treatment. Thank you for your son who gave us life through all that he suffered. Lord, it hurts us to read that your son experienced such shame on our behalf. And Lord, it hurts us to read that you were left alone as all the disciples fled. And I pray, Lord, that you forgive us for how often we have run away from you as well. Forgive us for when we have abandoned you in the time of fear. Forgive us for if we have been fake in our relationship with you. Forgive us if we have been unwilling to seek the truth about you ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would help us be real with our own hearts, be open and honest about who we are and where we stand before you. And we pray, Lord, that we would be disciples to the end. Help us to be faithful followers. Help us to squash any fears that we have of following you. Help us to seek your truth and to hear your words. And, Lord, help us to not be hypocritical, to not be fake, but to truly want you and a relationship with you with all of our heart. Forgive us and help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus. I'm asking you, where are you with Jesus today? There's lots of places you can be with him. They're all revealed to us here in Matthew 26. And we want to help you have a real relationship with Jesus before it's too late. Would you turn away from your sins and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who came to this world and died for your sins? and faithfully follow him to the very end. We are here to help you in that. We're here to pick each other up when we all fall down trying to do that. And we would love to help you in that process. Would you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?